Hello. Welcome to the Lafayette Podcast. I am Dan Ray. What role did the media play in creating a post-truth world? How do we create satire in the age of Trump and Brexit? Do we expect too much of our politicians? In this episode, I discuss all these questions and more with Armando Iannucci, the writer and broadcaster, famous for award-winning shows The Thick of It and Veep, as well as the Oscar-nominated film In the Loop. We also discuss his latest film, The Death of Stalin. Here is our conversation. Armando, thank you for joining us today in your office in London. Pleasure. Um, Armando... Makes me sound like I have offices all around the world. Oh, right. Yeah. But I don't. Well, this is quite a nice one. So It's, it's, it's the office. <laughs> so I wanted to start by asking you, with everything that's going on in the White House, with the chaos around Brexit, do you find the current political era at all funny? Uh, less and less so. I mean, which is not to stop other people uh, trying to joke about it, because I think that's necessary. I just find it, personally, I find it harder to be funny about it. Or, or if I joke about it, I find the joke comes out as just um, structured anger. Uh, yeah. I, I end up just swearing on, on Twitter <laughs> or, or something. You know, I just, I find um, um, maybe because, I don't know whether it's something to do with my age and the fact that, you know, having now watched politics for such a long time, you cannot believe that it's come, it's arrived at this point where nobody of any kind of substance seems to be around or or anyone who does have any kind of substance is dismissed as a, you know, an expert or an elitist or, or you know, God forbid, a thinker. Uh, and and the, the only way you can, you know, rise to the top is by is by being none of the above. Mm-hmm. And, and the only positive thing I can take from that is that it is at least making people think again about how democracy works and, you know, what have we taken for granted and, and what actually do we have to go out there and justify and defend and, 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 and you know, redefine and, and, and support. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to talk. I mean, you've been looking at the situation for quite a few years and with the thick of it and Veep, you've kind of been assessing maybe what could be considered the previous political era from the one we see now. And I want to talk about how we got here. I mean, in, in the thick of it and Veep, the focus is sort of the issues with spin and that sort yeah. of micromanaging. And now we're kind of in sort of the opposite of that or maybe the logical conclusion of that. But I want to look, I mean, do you, do you think that it was sort of the media, the 24-hour news cycle mm-hmm. that that created the situation? Or was it politicians? Was it the spin doctors that have created the situation? Well, it was a sort of, it was a bit of both. I mean, there's a, the, the pressure, the 24-hour cycle meant that suddenly, uh, you know, a politician couldn't move without whatever he or she did or said or, or the way they looked being analysed. And that then bred a paranoia on the part of politicians about what the media would say about them. Now, at, at that time, I suppose the media was a little bit more you could define it a bit more. I think today now with with podcasts and phones and you know everyone is a journalist potentially, um, and everyone mm. is a public figure potentially. Um, I think it was that paranoia about the media, a paranoia, uh, and, and and therefore there was a sort of over fixation on or on what you said, which kind of meant that people tried to say as little as possible. Yeah. You know, that they try to give away as little as possible. The politicians always define themselves by, you know, going towards the middle. As long as we've got the mid, you know, Middle England, you know, Middle Britain, uh, not alienating them. 
and, and take you for granted, therefore, the people on either side, on the left or the right, as people who would vote for them anyway. I think what we're yeah. getting now is like those people on either side is going, hang on a minute, you haven't spoken to us in ages now. You've forgotten about us. Um, so there's been that, that sense of a kind of voters' revolt. Um, but also, you know, I don't... I, it's not so much now this obsession with saying as little as possible. It's more about politicians thinking they can say anything now. You know, the, 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 there is so much media out there and so many ways of getting information or your opinion across that actually we can't. It's very difficult to, to try and arbitrate. It's, try, it's very difficult to, to, to be able to go, well, this is true and this isn't. And, and that's that's the danger that politicians like Donald Trump and uh, and Farage and, and Le Pen and so on can say, OK, well, we don't actually need, you know, the Telegraph and the Guardian and the BBC mm. anymore. We can set up our own website and we'll call it Breitbart News. We'll call it, as long as it's got news in the title, then people will feel it's somehow authentic. And that's where we can get our, our interpretation of events across. Yeah, I mean... In this sort of uh, saturated media landscape which we see, I, I kind of worry that maybe comedians, especially, they enjoy Trump too much. That there's too much reveling in this sort of um, yeah. this conflict well, inside the White House. That's my concern. I mean, why I like people like John Oliver and so on is mm. that they don't fall into the trap. They, they, they. Yes, they portray how uh, imbecilic he can be, but also they do a lot of research into uncovering. Um, his untruths, his lies, his distortions. Um, yeah. And the danger, I think, is that we mustn't see Trump as an easy target. We mustn't yeah. see him as, as an idiot. He's not an idiot. He's very smart. Mm. He's unhinged, um, you know, he's, yeah. uh, and he has a, a, an extraordinary um, fixation with himself. He's an mm. egomaniac yeah. and he's a dangerous one. Um, and, and as long as we realise that, I don't mind you know, satirizing that. But mm. I think that, you know, the thing I fear for is that we think he's an easy joke. Yeah. And he's not. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a very interesting point. There's this whole thing about taking him seriously or literally. And there's, you know, yeah. that the yeah. argument that his supporters, they take him seriously, but not literally. And yeah. his opponents take him literally, but not seriously. Not seriously. Yeah, but I mean... Especially... You should take him seriously and literally. Yeah. <laughs> you should analyze yeah. what he says. I mean, that thing that his spokesperson last week picked up a, an argument about used a word what was it um cosmopolitanism mm, yeah he had a go at the cnn for being just the cosmopolitan now actually the history behind that term is one used against uh that the nazis used and the Mussolini's fascists used in the mm -hmm. 1930s yeah. about people who attacked them so that word it seemingly benign cosmopolitanism yeah. is actually loaded with um different interpretations of different Meanings. And also, what's wrong with being cosmopolitan? Isn't that meant to be a? Isn't that a positive? Um, you, know, uh, you know, in the same way that you could have a go at Michael Gold for attacking experts. You know, what's wrong with being? A, what's yeah. wrong with being an elitist? Elitism is about trying to find people who excel at something and then bringing them into the conversation. Yeah, but I mean, one of my worries, especially with the sort of um, John Oliver comedy, which you say is sort of the right way of satirizing Trump, mm. is that. It, by by taking him literally and analyzing sort of breaking down his argument mm. um but then not taking him seriously kind of yeah. mocking him where, where when it comes to populist leaders it 
it comes across sort of that you were then mocking their supporters. When you, exactly. when you mock the intelligence of Trump, you're mocking people that go to his rallies and his supporters. And I feel that, especially with a lot of the late night comedy, yeah. you, you go into that territory quite dangerously. No, absolutely. I mean, that, that's where Hillary Clinton lost the election when she talked about mm. the basket of, uh, was it? Deplorable. Deplorable. Yeah. Um, because no matter how many times Donald Trump attacked her and her supporters, mm. it, was, it was seen to be degrading, you know, 45, 50% of the electorate, uh, which is something a politician could never survive yeah. after doing. Um, and I think there is that danger. And social media traps us into that again and again, because, you know, we end up engaging with people who share opinions with us. We end yeah. up liking and following and tagging um, those who we agree with. And we end up blocking and not platforming, non-platforming and um, dismissing those who disagree with us. So for a lot of us, I think it's easier to walk away from someone who shares, a, who has a different point of view rather than engage them. And yeah. I think what uh, I'd be keener on doing now is encouraging people to engage with people who have a difference of opinion. You might not get anywhere, yeah. and it may end up in insults being traded, but if you don't engage with them, there's no way you're gonna mm -hmm. win anymore uh, to your point of view. If you just say, I'm right and you're wrong, then you know the, 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 the numbers for and the numbers against are just gonna remain yeah. the same. But I worry that that maybe is, is, a, is a problem associated with this new trend in comedy. I mean, the difference between what you were doing in Thick of It and Veep, where there was no clear party that was being represented, and now, when comedians on these late night yeah. shows are expected to take a very strong political position, is that now comedy's become a form, a form of journalism and very partisan journalism, yes. and it may be adding to alienation. Well, partisanship has always been um, common in American broadcasting um, because there's less, there's more, you know, they, they take freedom of speech. It's, it's, you know, it's enshrined in the Constitution. Uh, and therefore you get news channels that have a very obvious liberal or conservative slant. MSNBC, quite liberal, Democrat-leaning. Fox News, obviously, um, more Republican-leaning. So, I, I, and, and therefore it's not unusual, and you have the phone-in yeah. posts who you know, are, are associated with particular political viewpoints. I think what's change things slightly is that you get the likes of John Oliver and Bill Maher who you know mm. says he's a sort of Democrat supporter and hates Republicans you 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 get them but now because of the way we can watch the media they're international they're no longer just for an American audience they're actually mm -hmm. an international audience and, and sometimes when watching them you know because I kind of more or less agree with them I find them very funny but I do worry whether they can be seen to be um, broadcasting just to their own uh, like-minded audience and aren't going, aren't reaching beyond that um, that sort of liberal consensus that exists East Coast and West Coast of America. It's much more, I mean, we have it differently in the UK because we've always had these impartiality rules in broadcasting, yeah. especially in public service broadcasting. So the BBC has to remain impartial. So it does actually encourage a form of comedy where they're obliged to, you know, not pin their opinions yeah. to one party, but actually are forced to analyse every party, even if they don't want to, which I think is actually healthy because it does, um, it does force you to, um, to, to look at 
and to see if there's any flaw or weakness in the arguments of those who, you know, outside of this TV studio you would go and vote for. Yeah, so I mean, when you see every night on the late night shows, the, the latest sort of scandal or the mooch being sort of, you know, laughed at every night yeah. and it's just the next scandal. I mean, yeah. do you think that that also is quite like concerning? Or, or Well, it's only in that, you know, it does, you, you, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the figures, but, it, you know, the Trump supporters will just say, well, that's just, you know, that's our guy. That's just who he is. So it doesn't really affect them. Mm. I actually think that's not the case. I think if you analyse Trump's support, it, it's steadily going down. Um, he still has a high approval rating amongst Republicans, but it's not quite as high as it was. Yeah. And if he carries on this way, it will get lower. And if you think that he won not the popular vote, but by very small percentages in certain states, it doesn't need that many people to switch for him to, to lose next time around. I think the problem the Democrats have is that they haven't quite coalesced around a figure who yeah. epitomizes the opposite of Trump. Hillary Clinton's image, unfortunately, was one of the establishment, which was yeah. precisely who Trump you know, wanted in his sights. Um, so you need someone just as subversive, but uh, original and unknown and, you know, but I suppose we've got three years to find someone like that. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to look at some of the work that you've done with The Thick of It and The Veep, and I wanted to ask you what was it that motivated you to, to write that satire? Was, was it anger at the way you saw things going? Yes, it was anger. It was <coughs> several things. It was frustration that... I mean, I, I, you know, when Blair got in in 97, I voted for him and, you know, I had huge hopes. And, and in fact, actually his record, Iraq war to one side, and that's a mm. very big thing to put to one side, his record was pretty good. And I think it was a tragedy that for someone who was so obsessed with popular opinion, the one thing where he chose to go against popular opinion, the, the Iraq war, was a thing that, you know, he will be now... Um, labelled and remembered and categorised forever in people's kind of memory and it's actually undermined a lot of what the early Blair governments actually did. That and his caution as well, I mean he could have done so much more uh, in terms of reform but he was, you know, his eye was always on the next election and, and not troubling too many people. Um, so there's an element of that and then in particular the invasion of Iraq, because there was something that, you know, I, I disagreed with profoundly, but I kept asking myself, how is it that where so many experts and non-experts were public opinion from, from left and right and centre was saying, this will end badly, are you mad? And where um, the um, where agencies like the security agency, the civil service, could be dragooned by just one person and his two or three people around him uh, into doing something that had such a cataclysmic effect on the rest of the world and which we are still experiencing. And and it just, you know, my frustration that we couldn't do something about that at the time, we couldn't stop him, made me start looking at how does government work in the UK? And, you know, the sad fact is, if you are a prime minister with a hefty majority, you can do that what the hell you like. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing there to stop you. Your um, 
your MPs will sit in line because, you know, you won the election, so they're not going to vote against you because they want to win the next election. There is no, there are no checks and balances. Yes, you've got the House of Lords, but, it, you know, it, it's a mild irritant. It's not something that can actually overturn legislation in any permanent way. Yes, you've got select committees, but they can only examine and ask difficult questions, but they can't stop you. If you are a prime minister, you are, you're more, you're in many ways, you're more powerful within the confines of, of British power than an American president, because, you know, as we're seeing with Donald Trump, he can't get health care repealed. He can't get his, uh, he can't stop the Senate from voting on sanctions against Russia. You know, because the Constitution of America has these checks and balances so that no one person has total and absolute power. In Britain, that is a situation that we do have. We have one person, if they have a majority. Um, which is why I thought it was good that Theresa May, um, who tried to get into that position, actually ended up with, with something that gave her less power. But now watching Veep and watching the thick of it, I yeah. kind of watch it with nostalgia. Yeah. Almost. I mean, in contrast <laughs> yeah. to how things are now, I, I I kind of worry in part that the the characterization of politicians, which which was in Veep and which was yeah. in the thick of it, this you know that was that you were it's too benign now. It's well, too it, benign. Yeah, it, it's benign. But also that was the swamp, right? And, yeah. And and it it helped feed this image of all politicians as yeah. being sort of incompetent and and cowardly and very corrupted. So, um, although I'd kind of, I, I'd kind of like to argue against that in that, for me, <clears throat> and quite a few people have said this to me, they find actually the most understandable and believable and, and relatable characters in them are the actual, the elected politician. It's the minister, Nicola Murray and, and Hugh Abbott, who you sort of feel, uh, and Peter Mannion, who you sort of feel slightly sorry for it's the it's the it's the unelected people around them that are the cause of the problems really the ones who who have no experience of the real world but but tell them well if you do this you'll get that headline and um if you apologize for that then this will go away oh it appears to have pushed it up the the the, the, the rankings in the in the news media it's uh, it somehow actually it's the it's the politician who's the most human and part of also doing think of it and then people was actually i wanted to show how it is that certain decisions and policies are made. We think they're made after months and months of consideration and careful thinking, but actually the world we put our elected representatives into is such a frenetic world that they don't have time to, to think about these things. They have, they have to make these decisions, more or less, on the, mo the moment it lands on their desk because there isn't time to... to to take that kind of long-term view. But I mean, looking at how politics operated in sort of the beep and then contrasting mm. it with now Trump, mm. who just says what he thinks and mm. tweets it out. I mean, do you, how, how, was it, how is it that you'd like to see politics operate? I mean, when you produce those shows, were you trying to say that something needs to change or were you just sort of pitying the politicians who involved? Well, I kind of felt our attitude towards politicians needs to change and that we expect them to be perfect. Although, as I say, that's now taken a, Trump can do what he likes now. <laughs> he can show as many imperfections as possible somehow, that seems to. But we expect them, so we, you know, if, if they turn out to have, you know, misapplied for expenses for a receipt that also includes dog food, somehow they should be locked up in prison. Um, or if, you know, flooding happens when they're away on holiday, they should cancel their holiday and never have a holiday again. Um, 
we we kind of we enjoy um, publicly flaying our politicians, and 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 that does concern me in that it, it means it's going to put people off going into politics, other than mm. very very confident, cocksure, ambitious people uh, who have money, so aren't worried about you know the 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 fact that they can't claim for expenses and the salary can't be above a certain level otherwise you know the daily mail will dislike it you know um, it, that that kind of worries me really but also it, it, i wanted to kind of show that we do have this system where as i say absolute power resides with an absolute majority <clears throat> and an absolute majority by the way which can be got off the back of i mean at one point blair had a considerable majority on the basis of winning something like 35% of the vote. Mm. Um, so I wanted to show, highlight that really, to say, you know, is this actual democracy? Is this democracy we're watching? Um, and what can be done about it? When it comes to political discourse, one of the things um, that's quite important for young people these days is sort of the issue of no platforming and yeah. the issue of offence. Yes. And I mean, some of the jokes in the thick of it have mm. been quite mm. uh, rude and offensive. Mm. Do, do you worry that this new tr this trend to be very concerned about offence and about who should be allowed to speak and what people should be allowed to say is in, is in some way damaging? to the Well, I do worry that, you, you know, if you take it to extremes, it, what you are then saying is I will not appear on a platform with anyone who disagrees with me. Um, and also, what's wrong with being offended? In that, you know, if I have certain views, say I had certain religious views, um, they should be able to withstand a joke about them or a critique of them or an argument against them. You know, if, um, uh, um, and, and I also feel that, you know, the, the not wishing to appear with someone who disagrees with you feels to be the easy way out because it means you're not testing your views on anyone else. You're only testing them on yourself. You know, I could argue that anything you say about me is is anti-me. You're being your nutriest if you have a go at any program I've ever made. And you're insulting me and I'm offended and we should discontinue with this podcast because uh, I just think it's inappropriate that you should be critiquing any of my... You know, it's that. You know, where do you, where do you draw the line at that? Yeah. You know, and of course... You know, and we're seeing it happening in America with white extremism and, uh, you know, radicalism. Yes, I think there's a common accepted view of what you don't want to be, what views you should, what opinions should, or language shouldn't be aired on, on national television. But, you know, I think you're, you're getting into very, very dangerous territory if, if, if you are saying that you... Uh, understand someone else so much that you don't actually need to hear from them. I think that's very dangerous. And I suppose on the other side of that, you get a lot of you get the sort of pushback in which White House officials can say, "Oh, Trump was just saying a joke." You know, if you if you don't if you don't properly delineate. Where yeah, yeah, yes, no, absolutely. Help. But I, this is something you know. This um, not listening to that point of view is something that is on the left and the right. Yeah. Um, you do, I mean, the only time I ever get any kind of hostile um, remarks on Twitter is if I have a go at either the SNP or John McDonnell in yeah. Labour. Suddenly I, I get very hostile, you know. Mm. Well, he's only doing his best, you liberal lefty, not lefty, mm. you liberal, whatever, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I just think, yeah, so you can take a joke. Um, 
But when I was researching in the Louvre, which was all about, you know, Britain and America going to war, speaking to a lot of people who'd worked with the neocons, the um, under George W. Bush uh, and the Minister of Defence and Dick Cheney and so on, they were like that. In that if, if they, if you disagreed with them, they felt you were therefore unintelligent and it wasn't worth their time carrying on the conversation. Mm. You know, it's that sort of, self-exclusion where you will only talk to people who agree with you you will mm. and you will only you will sift everyone out who has a slightly different opinion mm. and w one of the things which you've been a strong advocate for is young voters yeah um, and increasing the voter participation yes. amongst young people in the last election we saw one of the highest um, voter yes. turnouts among young people was this something that you found very encouraging it, it was and it, it made a difference i'm sure to what happened i mean the, uh, when the election was called all the headlines were about, you know, Theresa May heading for a, a hundred seat majority. Yeah. Uh, and any government with a large majority, I find dangerous under the present system because it can do whatever it like. And not just it, but the person who is in number 10 can do whatever they like. Um, so I was pleased that happened. But I think the, you know, the large turnout and the large engagement of younger voters made a difference. But it's now important that their votes aren't taken for granted and yeah. that they aren't just uh, assumed that... I mean, what's been interesting is that the Conservatives are now talking about, well, come the next election, we've got to have some kind of manifesto that appeals to, to young voters. Um, which was precisely what I was arguing, is that you will only get listened to by politicians if you're a big enough electoral force, which is why older voters are, are listened to all the time and why every mm. party talks about... Um, you know, a, a safety net for pensions and, you know, and, and, and you know, Theresa May tried to dismantle that and came unstuck. But, yeah. um, so that's encouraging. But I think now it gives young people the opportunity to be a bit more vocal in what it is they want to see done with politics. What do you think it was that brought young people I, to those? I think it was actually, I mean, I could be wrong. I haven't done a scientific, but I think it was a lot of people who didn't vote in the referendum, yeah. but who, you know, instinctively wanted to vote, agreed with Remain, waking up and, and realising, oh, I didn't vote and this has happened. Mm. Um, I, I think that yeah. probably galvanised quite a lot. Because uh, it, it is interesting that, you know, this has suddenly happened, this engagement. Normally for 18 to 24 year olds, the, the turnout was something like as low as 40% or 45%. This time it went up to yeah. about... 60, 65%, you know, yeah. and it's a big jump. And I think it was that. It was like last year, I didn't I didn't take part. Look what happened. I'm, I'm going to take part this time. You have a new film coming out, The Death yes. of Stalin. I was wondering if you could tell us, what, what made you want to tell that story now? Well, it's, it's a number of things. I, you know, I just finished doing four or five years in America, looking at American politics. And I, I wanted to come back and I wanted to do a film because the last film I did was about nine years ago. Uh, and I was desperate to do another film. I didn't want to do anything about America just because I, I kind of, I liked the idea of doing something European. Um, I, interesting enough, I was looking at the whole world of absolute power and dictators and totalitarianism and I'd been sort of reading around all those areas. And then the, the, um, the production company who owned the rights to the graphic novel, because it was originally a French graphic novel, The Death Star, based loosely on real events, they approached me and said, look, we want to make this a film and we think you'd be the person to do it. And they originally 
approached me while I was still doing Veep and I said, well, I've got at least one more series of Veep to do. And they said, well, we'll wait. And uh, and I read it and I absolutely thought, yes, I can see how I can do this. This absolutely yeah. speaks to exactly what it is I want. There's a, there's a whole absurd logic to it. There's a mm. whole thing about fear and paranoia there. There's very much a sense of, you know, what happens when, you know, you 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 don't protect democracy. You know when 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 the state goes bad, there. Uh, but also, what happens when people who have, you know, the best of political intentions, um, eliminate any kind of conversation with people who disagree with them? You yeah. know, you can. You know, there's a lot there. And interestingly, as we've made it, people who have you know seen it have said it's strangely relevant because it's all about. You know, there are descriptions in it of people saying no no new narrative that's an old narrative we're on to a new narrative now and, mm. you know there are there are discussions about alternative alternative facts and and fake fake news and stuff mm. that you know we wrote it a couple of years ago and we shot it last year so it was before trump even got yeah. in but it, it seems strangely relevant well certainly one of the things watching the trailer that seems yeah. to be running through a running theme throughout yeah. the thick of it and the and now the death of Stalin, yeah. sort of maybe the looking at power and yes. the dynamics of power. Yes. And I was just wondering if maybe when you were doing the research for this film, yes. you saw differences or or is, is power, the dynamics of power, something that's absolute, do you think? Well, I mean, what this is about is, is not just power that affects people's lives, but power that could actually get people killed. And we don't shy away from the fact that um, people in the Stalin era um, were rounded up and shot if they said the wrong thing or thought the wrong thing or, you know, or, or if somebody just didn't like you, um, you, you could end up being, uh, were either shot or were sent to the gulags. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this, the, the biggest scene in it is a scene that takes place right in the middle and it's basically just a committee meeting. Yeah. And everyone's static in it. But it is the most eventful scene with a whole, whole cast. And because what's decided there is the fate of certain people around the table but also uh, you know millions of people across the soviet union um and we don't you know we you know we did our research and and we're very respectful of the fact that this takes place against a not a background a foreground of millions of people being uh imprisoned or or shot is there anything at the moment that you've been reading that has kind of helped you to understand what's going on in the world at the moment or that has shed some light on it? Is there anything that's on your bookshelf? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I've just finished the fourth volume of this Cairo massive biography of Lyndon Johnson, which is, which is a biography of someone who was deeply flawed but just knew exactly how to use power and could use it for social reform when he was passionate about it, but also could use it to drive through the Vietnam War and lie about it to the American people when he was like emotionally bound up in that. So the use and abuse of power is, it, that's an interesting, I mean, it's, a, mm. it's almost like, it's, you know, it's the, it's the great American novel, except it's, it's not fiction. Um, and I'd, I'd recommend that, but I mean, it's thousands of pages long and, mm. and it, there's still at least one more volume to come. I'm also reading a lot of John McCarry at the moment. I quite like the paranoia and the, and the kind of the, he's the opposite of Bond. He's, you know, it's the, it's little people being caught up in big lies, which is kind of, and, and then how they behave emotionally 
mm -hmm. know, as human beings to that that are kind of interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Armando, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. This episode was produced by Ben Frasher and edited by Daniel Ray.